Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning, and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Vessel, and I'm here, as always, with my wonderful co-host, Anna Greta Hunter. Anna Greta, it's great to be with you. And it's great to be with you too, Sharon. It's so good to be back in the pod. I'm very much looking forward to today's conversation. Over the last several episodes of Policy Forum Pod, we've been exploring the ways in which social policy in Australia can be reimagined. And we wrapped up those conversations, for now at least, with a fantastic conversation with Professor Kay Cook from Swinburne University of Technology and Associate Professor Ben Phillips from here at ANU. Sharon, I'm wondering where we're going next. Well, today we're going global and we're going to be talking about the global systems that dominate and particularly 21st century capitalism and how all of that seems to be deepening inequalities and injustices. And we'll be beginning to reimagine global systems that are more fair and just. And we'll unpack what capitalism looks like today and how it operates before working through some of the ways that we might think differently and we might behave differently at the global level. And to discuss all of that with us, we have an amazing guest, a wonderful colleague from here at the ANU. Anna Greta, would you like to do the introductions? With delight. We are delighted to welcome Professor Susan Sell. Professor Sell is based here at the School of Regulation and Global Governance, or REGNET, here at the ANU. She's previously held positions at a number of universities, including George Washington University in the USA, and has published widely on global political economy and on 21st century capitalism. Professor Sell has been a consultant for the Ford Foundation, for the Open Society Institute, and for the World Health Organization. And in 2015-16, she was appointed to the expert advisory group for the United Nations Secretary General High-Level Panel on Public Health and Access to Medicine. Susan, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Susan, as Anna Greta said in that introduction, you've written extensively about the nature of the global system and the ways in which power, political, economic and personal power, play out and privilege particular ideas and interests. And you've made the point that we've moved beyond the neoliberalism of the 1980s, that kind of neoliberalism that was championed by leaders like Pinochet, like Thatcher, like Reagan and many others, um, a, a form of neoliberalism that saw the rollback of the state. 
And you've argued that we're now in an era of 21st century capitalism. Can we begin this conversation by asking you to talk us through what 21st century capitalism is and how it differs from what came before? Yeah, thank you, Sharon. Yeah, I would argue that I I think it's really important to understand the differences if we're going to address the problems that result from that. And I found in my own work that the term neoliberalism was just too big of a tent. It was too broad and it focused so much on market fundamentalism, which was, you know, Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative to the market. But I think the the important things about 21st century capitalism is that markets have become much more thickly encased from social policy and from democratic accountability. And I think that's driven by three features that are interrelated. One is the globalization of finance, which occurred under market fundamentalism. The second is the expansion of intellectual property. And the third is the rise of the digital platforms. And I think these three features share a certain amount of opaqueness that make it difficult to regulate in a way that promotes social benefits. Because, you know, if you just think about the algorithms that drive the platforms, we can't see those. When the big banks had all these exotic, toxic assets, it was very difficult. No one really understood what the market value of those toxic assets were during the global financial crisis. And then with intellectual property protection, the extension of that and the deepening of it and the globalization of that has shown us, especially in the COVID pandemic, that many countries were not able to get vaccines because of intellectual property protection and the fact that the the companies making the vaccines did not want to share the technology to increase capacity. But what we ended up with were vaccine billionaires, even though the funding of the vaccines came from governments. So, you know, we socialized all the risk and the uh, companies got all the profits. So I think there are a lot of examples of this sharpening inequality. I think one helpful way to, to visualize this is to think about something called the smile curve. So when you think of the production of a good or the production of a service, um, if you think about the steps that it takes to provide that service or produce that product, um, at one end of the value chain would be the pre-production And this is the intangibles. This would be the intellectual property. This would be the research and development. And then the next step in providing a good or a service would be the design. Then we move to the logistics. And at the bottom of that smile curve is production, when you produce the actual good or the service. And then moving on that smile curve, going up to logistics, marketing, and services. Now, what's happened, if you think about that smile curve, what's happened is that smile has gotten very, very steep, much steeper than it used to be. The smile used to be flatter in terms of the value gained by, you know, for example, if you own the intellectual property, 
back in the day. Uh, you controlled the intellectual property before the globalization of intellectual property rights. If you own the technology, the intellectual property, there wasn't a huge gap really between what the workers were being paid and the owners of the intellectual property. But now the highest value added is at the tops of that smile curve. And that would be the intangibles, meaning the R&D and the intellectual property around that. And also the on the other end of the smile would be the services, uh, managing your trademark, um, et cetera. So what's happened is the smile's gotten steeper. So the actual workers or the gig workers with the platforms, they have gotten uh, less and less of the value added. And those at the top of the smile have gotten more and more of the lion's share. And at the tops of these smiles, we see market dominance. If you think about Amazon, Google, the big banks, the pharmaceutical companies, we see monopoly dominance in these areas and their monopolies are protected by the intangibles that they have control over. And as a result, that's led to steepening inequality and a much, much, uh, you know, it's a winner take all system now. We have superstar firms and it's very, uh, competition is, is very much compromised under this 21st century capitalism. Even under starting with the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, we started to relax antitrust policies or what you call competition policies here in the United States in particular. But we didn't really, we weren't worried about monopolies. We were worried about our companies being competitive in global markets. And so we weren't so concerned about monopolies at home. And you can see a lot of examples of it in Australia with Woolworth and Coles pretty much dominating the grocery sector. But what we've seen is a steep increase in mergers and acquisitions, monopoly. Um, a lot of these firms buy up their competitors. The same is true in the pharmaceutical industry and medical device industries, that these big firms buy up their competitors and take their intellectual property and just become more and more dominant. And they create these giant moats around their business dominance. So that's very difficult for up-and-comers to uh, compete. And if you look at the top firms in the world, they've been up there for a while. Microsoft hasn't budged. And it Microsoft has made almost all its value added from intellectual property protection. Susan, you've mentioned the ways in which protections for intellectual property are characteristic of the 21st century capitalist model that we're in at the moment and are, of course, highly problematic. You've given us a superb example in this of the global COVID vaccination experience and the restrictions that so many countries have faced, particularly in the global south. I'm wondering if we could flesh out the issues around intellectual property. Why do you think it has become such a problematic part of capitalism? Is it deeply connected to that monopolization process that you've just described so beautifully? Or are there other factors at play that, that drive this intellectual property challenge? Intellectual property protection, that's actually been mostly what my research focus has been. And intellectual property started out as a grant from the state. It was a privilege. It was a grant of monopoly privilege that countries would offer to spur development or they wanted to bring a particular technology to the kingdom. It started in the United Kingdom and in Italy, and it was a way to promote new technologies 
for the public betterment, for public purposes, public policy. And for example, in the United States, we wanted to have a literate American population, or we wanted the development of an, a uniquely American literature. So the United States for many years did not recognize copyright for foreign authors. And Charles Dickens was livid about it, and he wanted the United States to recognize his copyright in his books, but we didn't recognize him. And we were cranking out his novels on little penny presses and selling them very cheaply because we wanted to get good American literature in people's hands to start to develop our own. Um, Similarly, the United States founded a bunch of land-grant universities, and they gave away seeds to farmers or to people that were moving westward. That was one of their main purposes. They would give away seeds so that People moving west could make the land for, you know, with fertile land, they would be able to feed a growing population and encourage the development of the west. So there are a lot of times when what we think of as maybe intellectual property uh, has been ignored uh, and not recognized because of public policy purposes. And what we've seen, especially, and this is a lot of what my research has been, is the United States was really the main demander for everybody to protect intellectual property. And over time, the kinds of things that are protected by intellectual property, patents, they've expanded quite a bit. So living organisms can be patent protected, for example. So you know the range of things that are considered intellectual property and are protected by intellectual property rights Now they're called intellectual property rights. They're no longer called monopoly privileges, which they originated as. The balance has gotten quite skewed because back in the day, the idea was we'd give you a temporary monopoly as the state, but in exchange, you share the, um, you know, you have to publish the patent. You have to make this invention or whatever available for the public betterment, for the progress of arts and sciences, as it says in the United States Constitution. So what's happened over time is the balance between private rights and public obligations has gotten extremely skewed. And now the focus is really just on the private rights at the expense of the public obligations. And I think that is really what we saw in very sharp form during COVID. We saw it also during with the pharmaceutical industry. We saw it also with the HIV AIDS crisis of the late 1990s. And here again with the COVID crisis where the inequities were just astonishing. <laughs> and uh, African countries in particular, much of the global South just had to wait at the end of the line until we vaccinated our people three times over. And, you know, South Africa and India asked at the World Trade Organization, could we have a waiver for intellectual property for COVID necessary materials, COVID essentials, vaccines, therapeutics, medical devices? Uh, You know, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing has something like 400 patents just on the the masks (laughs) that we all were wearing. And that makes it very difficult um, for people to get access to these things. So it's created, I think it's a very good example of how it's encased these essential technologies with monopoly dominance to the expense of 
the public good that they could be serving and the social purpose of um, offering protection in the first place, because it's supposed to be an incentive to be innovative, but also an obligation to disseminate the fruits of that innovation. And that, that balance is just completely gone. And now it is really about uh, capturing the most rent you can from your intellectual property protection rather than serving uh, legitimate social purposes. And that's why we end up with these extremely um, dominant corporations with monopoly power. It's true of the big banks as well. And it's also true um, of the digital platforms. Susan, that gives us such deep insights into the way that some of these issues are playing out and the way inequality is playing out in the globalised world that we had today. And I wanted to, to return to or perhaps go a little deeper into this issue of how corporations make their money in a world that's dominated by financialised capitalism or 21st century capitalism and who those corporations are accountable to. You described the the smile graph for us, which is such a powerful way of visualising who profits and how inequalities are being deepened. A feature of that smile graph and the system it represents is the very complex web of global value chains that characterise global production. I wonder if you can just talk us through a little of how those complex global value chains play out what that means for economic and social justice and for accountability. I think it's really compromised all those things, social justice. It's definitely compromised accountability. That's what I mean about the encasement of these markets. But, you know, just to give a couple examples, let's say Apple, you know, they have the R&D in the United States. They have a lot of intellectual property. I mean, that's in the brand, et cetera. Uh, patents and, and trademark and design. And the employees at Apple are very well compensated, the ones in Silicon Valley. But the people that actually are making the product, the iPhones, the iPads, and the computers, they are not well compensated. You've probably all heard about the scandals of suicides at Foxconn in China. But a Taiwanese contractor makes the Apple products, but that contractor only in China and that contractor only receives pennies on the dollar for, you know, every MacBook, every iPhone. Um, And that smile has gotten steeper, meaning those are actually producing goods are getting less well compensated than they used to be. And the differential between those at the top of the smile and those at the bottom has gotten much, much steeper, much wider. You know, the accountability issue was raised with some of the digital platforms and the gig work in particular. And I know this has been addressed in Australia when DoorDash people are getting killed, you know, delivering food, they get hit by a car. But the gig economies like the Uber and the TaskRabbit, uh, those kind of uh, gig economy uh, companies, they say that the people that work for them are independent contractors. They're not employees. So they don't get minimum wage. They don't get sick leave. They don't get any benefits because the gig companies don't have any obligations to their employers. And that is starting to be addressed um, by different experiments. In Melbourne, I think they they did 
you know, have put some minimum wage requirements or they're putting some requirement on the food delivery service. But those companies try to avoid accountability by saying, well, we're not their employer. They're an independent contractor. So we have no obligation to them. You know, our job is just linking a customer to a service provider. So the gig workers suffer from a lot of precarity. COVID also showed us a lot of other things about essential workers and the essential workers, the ones who couldn't do their work on Zoom, the ones who had to show up and be exposed, the people in the meatpacking plants, the people in the hospitals, the bus drivers, the first responders, the people who stock our grocery shelves. And, you know, many of those workers didn't have benefits like sick leave. So they would be not feeling well and go to work and maybe they would spread COVID. Maybe they would get COVID in in the workplace. Uh, Amazon's uh, fulfillment centers were not providing PPE for their workers and they worked very closely together. And so some of the Amazon workers started to, to try to unionize in order to fight for pandemic essentials and better working conditions. And one of the organizers at a warehouse in New Jersey was fired for organizing. So, um, you know, workers have had it really tough, and especially the essential workers. And we call them essential, but they tended to be at the bottom of the pay scale. So we didn't treat them as if they were very essential. And meatpacking plants had a lot of bad COVID outbreaks in particular because they're working so close together. And many of the people working in those plants are migrants and live with multi-generation households and vulnerable older people in those homes. So there are a lot of deaths connected with meatpacking plants. And one company in the United States where there have been a lot of death in a particular plant, they started offering uh, $300 bonuses to come to work in a place that the workers knew was just filthy with COVID. So the essential workers, that language um, really belied the way that, that they're compensated, the way they're treated. And it, you know, it was just really clear that how much we depend on you know, what we call essential workers, but then they're not being treated. And you know, sick leave is a really important thing to be able to have, uh, especially in a pandemic. So it really revealed a lot of the dysfunction that's come from this rather libertarian approach (laughs) of the 21st century. Mm. Susan, you've just described to us how the precarious employment that's involved or a dominant part of our market system leads to poor physical and mental health. The market, our financial system, has direct implications for people's lives, for their health and for their health outcomes. I'm wondering if you could talk us through some of the key ways in which 21st century capitalism and the other associated issues we've been discussing impact and undermine our health and well-being on a community level. Yeah, I mean, you know, getting back to the question Sharon asked earlier that I didn't answer was who are these companies accountable to? And that's a big problem. They're accountable to their shareholders. And so the motivation is to extract as much value as you can and distributed to your shareholders. And a lot of the profit that the companies make is used to buy back their shares of their own company on the market to keep the share price high. So instead of, you know, if you have a big profit before shareholder value became 
the uh, main line of accountability. You know, there used to be stakeholders. You know, if you're a pharmaceutical firm, you want to produce the best product that's going to actually make a patient get better, (laughs) something like that. But now your main obligation is to your shareholders and they want the share price to stay high. And so the profits, instead of being put back into the company to make a better mousetrap, they're being used to buy shares on the open market to elevate the value of those shares. So the accountability is no longer to your customer or to your patients, you know, people that need medicine, it's really to the shareholders. And then you want to squeeze as much profit as you can and to distribute that profit to your shareholders. And the shareholders now really, especially in 21st century capitalism, they really bet on dominance. They they want you to be the dominant firm. They want you to be the Apple, the Facebook, you know, the Amazon. Um, and that's something that's different than the neoliberal uh, period of the 1980s to the 2000s. But I think across employment, across health care, I mean, all of these social policies have been um, given the short end of the stick, I think, in terms of serving people well, decent jobs, decent wages for people. You know, the healthcare system in the United States where I'm from is just it's shocking. And the prices of drugs is also shocking. But there was one firm, this was a COVID story, you know, how it impacted your health, that there was uh, a lot of government investment in this little company in Newport, California. And the company was making a $3,000 ventilator that you could, you know, move easily from room to room in a hospital. It was lightweight, it was portable, it was very effective, and it was $3,000. And they had a contract with the government to provide these. And of course, everyone wanted them with COVID. This would be a great thing to have in the hospital. And instead, a company that makes a $10,000 ventilator, um, it's a much bigger company. Um, They bought this little Newport company that made the portable cheaper ventilator for $3,000 versus 10 that for the big bulkier one and the, the less efficient one. They bought the company and then they killed the program with the $3,000 ventilator because they didn't want to have to compete with this better mousetrap, as I would call it. So, you know, that's just one example because ventilators were really in short supply. And that is something that, um, you know, people died for not having a ventilator. (laughs) Um, And this would have increased supply and made the price reasonable. Many hospitals would have been able to afford it. But that's just one example of how keeping your shareholders happy means you maybe buy this other company and, you know, kill the, the affordable competitive alternative to your product. So it creates incentives that are removed from the actual customers and the community and the people that we would like to see better served by the things that these corporations produce. Well, you've given us so much to think about, Susan, for the particularly around the impacts that our market system has on our health and well-being. We might have to take a really short break here, but we will be back in just a moment. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, we're here with Professor Susan Sell. We're talking about 21st century capitalism and how it undermines health outcomes, social goals and equity. Susan, before the break, you described to us the remarkable connection between the market, our work and our health, particularly for those who are working in precarity, where we see the market impacting directly on physical and mental health. Of course, this increase in demand for healthcare grows healthcare services, uh, a process that can be described by some as failure demand, growing the economy by growing demand for services that we really shouldn't need in the first place particularly if we were caring for people and place. And I wonder whether or not we could talk a bit about GDP and about economic growth and the way in which that impacts on health and well-being. What sort of connections do you see from your work? Well, I mean, there's a lot of debate about whether we need to move to a no-growth model, <laughs> really, um, because of climate impact and, and mental health and, and many different reasons. I have not given that a lot of thought in terms of how sustainable that would be. What I focus on more is thinking about how these corporations evade their tax responsibilities and, you know, looking into more preventative programs and things like universal health care. You know, I think that a lot of the problem is not paying taxes. I mean, Apple makes a ton of money in the United States and doesn't pay much in taxes there. They're able to hide this. You know, if you have these intangibles, you can declare that the value of those is in Ireland and you don't pay many taxes on it. But the the tax dodging by these major corporations is quite astonishing. And governments are being cheated out of revenue that they should be collecting. And that has led to the underfunding of healthcare services, especially, you know, the preventative kind of healthcare, the well-being that everyone can just go and, you know, have an annual physical or whatever, the kind of things that, I mean, in the United States, many people don't go to the doctor because they can't afford it. And especially if they don't have health insurance, which is expensive or linked to your job. I mean, the Australian system is far superior to what the United States system is, but you know, people are having to choose between buying their diabetes medication and paying the rent. You know, I think it comes down, you have to have good policies, right? It's not just give governments money because they do a lot of, you know, they get it wrong a lot and maybe can't always be trusted to do the right thing. But, you know, when I look at things like um, education and health, there are certain things that I think, of course, need to be priorities because they're the bedrock of agriculture, you know, growing food, nutrition, education, well-being, all these things are really central. And I think they 
need to be somewhat more protected from from capitalism. But the piece of capitalism that could be helpful is if taxes actually are being paid and collected um, and that they could go into these more community values and reflect social purpose that you want an educated population. You want people to be healthy. You want them to have access to nutritious food. Um, you know, the, the ultra processed food companies are a disaster. And, and it's, it's kind of a real time experiment. If you look at all the fast food companies, because China was close to those for so many years. And once Pizza Hut and KFC, they all got into the Chinese market, China started having an explosion of obesity and diabetes, things that they never had seen before. And it's totally correlated with when the fast food came in. And they sell the food ultra cheap, you make it addictive. Um, but that's, you know, that's another system that really needs to be rethought and, and that many communities are living in food deserts where all they have access to is fast food. And it, it really feeds itself in the sense that, you know, you're a precarious worker, you're getting paid not a lot of money, you have a family to feed, you can buy bad food from McDonald's very cheaply. You can feed your family much cheaper with this food that is going to cause all sorts of health problems that down the line are going to be much more expensive. And so I'm encouraged by things I see like community gardens and you know investing in neighborhoods that lack access to fruits and vegetables. You know, a lot of the little markets just have potato chips and sodas and cigarettes and lottery tickets um, in these poor areas. And so, you know, this is also related to uh, financialization and the shareholder value and the profitability of the ultra processed food markets and the monopoly of those. If you think of Nestle, Cadbury, um, they're, they're Unilever. I mean, they're giant monopoly conglomerates. And that does those don't seem to be serving us very well. Susan, that's extraordinary, the way in which you can map out the mechanisms by which we can use the market uh, with appropriate regulation, with taxation. And in fact, part of what you've described, I think, is some creativity. But we can use this model to achieve some of the social and health goals that we as a community or a society might aim for. You've advocated public value mapping and the adoption for the World Health Organization's four A's, availability, accessibility, appropriateness, and affordability, as ways forward. What is public value mapping and how does it help us to move forward toward better health and social outcomes? Well, I actually borrowed the term public value mapping from my brilliant, very brilliant uh, PhD student. Walter Johnson, who is doing his PhD here at Regnet, he's published quite a bit on this. But the idea is that on the front end, you align your policies with the social outcomes that you would like to see. And, you know, you can identify those social outcomes in different ways. I mean, during the Reagan-Thatcher era, all you heard about was efficiency, right? Um so the values that in the WHO um, for A's, they're really focusing on the social benefit that you want to achieve. And I think we really need to uh, put front and center, what is the social purpose? What's the public purpose of uh, 
you know, this industry. Even if you think about banking, banking has gotten in, it's turned more into casino capitalism than, you know, banks used to had some social purpose in the past where they would provide financing for uh, small businesses, for people wanting to buy a home, and they were serving the community. And now the big banks are really gambling uh, with assets and they have injected the practices and the deregulation of the banking industry and the globalization of finance has injected so much volatility into the global economy that a lot of these exotic financial instruments, which are intangibles, you know, like the mortgages they sliced up into a million pieces to make an asset that they could sell. um, And those became toxic of course, when people defaulted on their on their loans. But, you know, this isn't really helping the productive economy. It's not being invested into making better mousetraps or providing services that that people really need. Instead, it's sort of gambling with all this this money to make your shareholders happy. And it's just gotten so far away from sort of the human purposes that I believe the economy should be, you know, economic activity should be serving the human community rather than exploiting it and leading to this really stark inequality. I mean, everybody's been commenting on the sharpening of inequality from Thomas Piketty's book, The French Economist, um, his book. And, you know, everyone recognizes that inequality has gotten much more extreme uh, both across societies, within societies, in cities, uh, the unhoused uh, populations are getting larger. So this needs to be addressed. And I think it's also contributing to the rise of populism. We see a lot of right-wing populism, sort of ethno-nationalism. And a lot of the, you know, if you look around the world, the right-wing populism is, we can see it with, uh, in India, we see it, with, well, with Duterte, the former president of the Philippines, uh, Orban in Hungary, Donald Trump in the United States, I would say even Scott Morrison somewhat here, that I feel is dangerous. And well, of course, Putin and Xi, but I think in part that the popularity of right-wing populism is in part a function of people feeling like they've been left behind and the system is not serving them. And somehow, you know, and inequality has gotten so much sharper and it's created a lot of anger, a lot of less trust in institutions. And I think it's very much related to 21st century capitalism. It's not the only explanation for it. There's a lot of other things that go into that rise, but the fact that it's happening so many places at the same time leads me to think that there's some correlation there about the way people near the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder are angry or feel resentful. And I think it's bad for politics. And I think it's, it's leading to a lot of dysfunction and, um, you know, democracy, I don't think United States democracy has been under so much danger as it is today. You know, seeing what's going to happen with these, lawsuits against the former president, you know, when the January 6th insurrection, our, our experiment seems to be in peril right now. And I think a lot of it is because of anger, disinformation, the digital platforms aren't helping. Facebook 
they found that the things that are polarizing actually get more eyeballs. And so they get more ad revenue. And, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, stories anyway about how uh, some, you know, genocidal campaigns uh, in Myanmar, I, I believe, were, you know, pushed on Facebook. And we saw a lot of the uh, organization of the capital insurrection also was on these social media platforms. So these things are all related. Um, I think an agenda, a research agenda is really to map out the mechanisms that connect these macro trends to the outcomes on the ground that don't seem to be very good, um, whether they're related to climate overconsumption, uh, fast fashion, <laughs> education or health or democracy itself, I think, you know, it's a big agenda, or what I believe anyway, is looking at the mechanisms that connect these macro trends to the micro outcomes that we would like to change, and to think creatively about potential regulation to get closer to public value mapping and uh, foregrounding legitimate social purpose um, in our economic activity. Susan, this has been a, a remarkable conversation and you've explained for us the, the really shocking impacts of 21st century capitalism on health outcomes, on social justice and equity. And also that point you made about the rise of populism, which I see really as a politics of despair. And of course, as you noted, you know there are equally devastating impacts on the planet and our ability to address climate change. Susan, as we wrap up this conversation, and I know it's a conversation that we're going to return to again, I'd love to hear a little more from you about how we might begin to rein in 21st century capitalism and reimagine a better global system. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm in the process of collecting experiments, regulatory experiments around the world. Um, and that's going to be what I'm going to be doing for quite a while, the <laughs> next number of years, I think, to see what approaches might be useful. Because I think there's some older approaches to antitrust, for example, that I think would be useful. We need to reinvigorate competition policy. That's something very important. And the uh, lean economy in the United States is, is trying to adopt a more robust antitrust approach to the um, tech giants, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think that a robust competition policy is absolutely essential. I think there has to be um, a firewall reinstated. We'd start, we did it after uh, the Great Depression, but there was a firewall between retail banking, you know, where you go and borrow your money to buy a house or, or, or whatever, financial education, and investment banking, where you know, they operate more like they're in a casino <laughs> rather than the retail banking. And we had the um, Glass-Steagall was the law from 1933 that created that. And what we had after that was stability in the banking sector. It was repealed under Clinton. And um, what we've seen is just nothing but volatility in the banking sector and financial crisis after financial crisis ever since. So there's some things that seem to be kind of low hanging fruit. Um, also, uh, you know, finally the OECD is talking about it to have some kind of uh, global approach towards tax policy to, uh, you know, to try to get away from this, this um, tax dodging um, in 
you know, and, and the tax shelters that the richest corporations take advantage of to the detriment of, you know, the public coffers. They're supposed to be educating our children. They're supposed to, you know, the public obligations, uh, they're being, the budgets are being starved because they're not getting the tax revenue from the very richest corporations. So I think that tax law can be changed. You know, we've been doing nothing but corporate tax giveaways in the United States for a long time. It's had a negative effect on, on our ability to provide social policy and services. So um, you see that certainly in the UK. And then there's some, you know, other, like some cities have banned Uber, for example. And, you know, Melbourne, I, I believe, has done some things to try to regulate and to protect the people that are doing DoorDash and and riding their bikes and delivering food all over town. And, and so, you know, there's sort of little experiments that can be done. And then there are uh, bigger structural changes that I think need to happen. And I think it would be better for, um, you know, as you rightly said, Sharon, I think a lot of this populism is a politics of despair. And until we address the causes of that despair, I think the politics is just going to get increasingly toxic and destabilizing with much worse outcomes <laughs> for everything, including the planet. So, um, but I think, I think there's a value to taking this big macro picture, but then the value of it is then how do you wind it back down to the micro level, the community level? What are, what experiments are working? What, what's a feasible alternative that uh, would have better social outcomes and, and be more closely aligned with policy value mapping. But what are the values we're trying to achieve? Efficiency, you know, that was the whole thing in the eighties and the neoliberal project, but, but efficiency certainly I mean, we have to move more in a direction of equity, clearly, um, given where we've ended up with efficiency as the main goal. Susan, I think that message of shifting to equity rather than efficiency is such a powerful one for us to end this conversation on. One of the things that we love on the pod are these big conversations about the big challenges that we face. Um, thank you for mapping out both some of those challenges, but also the ways in which we can respond, the the big structural changes needed, but also the smaller things that can happen at the local level to bring about greater fairness and, and greater equity. Susan Sell, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you for your great questions and also for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun. So thank you. Well, Anna Grenner, my goodness, we covered a lot of ground with Susan Sell. And I think every time I talk with Susan, I feel like my my mind is expanding towards explosion. Um, there's so much in what she talks about. But I was really struck by both the, I guess, the macro and the micro picture that she painted. And when she was talking in particular about food deserts and the way in which our market system creates those food deserts, I couldn't help reflecting on an experience I had some years ago when we were doing research in a, a very low SES suburb in, in Australia. And it was a food desert. There was nowhere within walking distance for people to be able to buy food. But there were two local bottle shops that were both within walking distance. And each of those bottle shops had started to sell both nappies and milk. And they presented this as, as kind of providing a, a public service because those were essential things that people needed. But, you know, it just shows 
how that impacts on people's lives when you can buy nappies and milk and essentials, but really it's alcohol that's being provided rather than fresh food in communities that really need fresh food. And I also started to think about our conversations with Anthea Roberts and um, the work that she's done around the six faces of globalism and you know the rise of populism. And I think that idea of the politics of despair is so central to understanding the way in which a failing market system is just casting people aside and giving them with nothing to turn to other than the hollow promises of populists. And so I think we really need to reclaim values. We really need to think about in whose interests systems of governance and systems of regulation are, are acting. And those ideas of both national and global policies that are about regulation, about human rights, and around redistribution are really critical as we grapple with how we rein in and rein back the 21st century capitalism that Susan Sell describes so powerfully. It was an extraordinary conversation, wasn't it, Sharon? It, she provokes all sorts of questions in my mind and, as you have already mentioned, paints and connects the the human experience, the lived life on the ground with these very large global forces certainly gets me thinking again about what is the economy and what is it for? What is the point of this? And I'm remembering that after the most recent Australian federal budget that our Prime Minister described the budget as a good piece of work because it balanced the needs of the people with the needs of the economy. And it's almost like we speak of the economy as a separate beast that needs to be cared for alongside the human condition. So for me, today's conversation with Susan Sell sits in with a variety of conversations we've had over the last couple of years. I'm particularly struck, having listened again just recently to the conversation we had with Dame Marilyn Waring, uh, the, the conversations we've had with Guy Standing, with, of course, Sharon Friel from Regnet as well, and most recently with Catherine Trebek. We've talked a lot about what role the, the neoliberal economic system plays in the way in which we look after each other and the sort of impacts that our economic structures have on people, on our health and well-being, and on place through issues such as environmental destruction and climate change. And to me, I keep coming back to our hashtag, Sharon, our hashtag value care. What mechanism is there to associate the economy with caring for people and caring for place? And that's really what Susan has provoked in me again today is to think deeply about the system that we can create that allows us to care for people, to care for place. Yeah, Anna Greta, beautifully put, as always. And I think, you know, how is it that we put the common good, you know, Guy Standing's idea of the commons, you know, the ideas of people like Marilyn Waring and Catherine Trebek at how we put values at the centre and how we rein in that rampant libertarianism that we are seeing dominate all alongside, you know, those, those market values. Lots for us to unpack. I think over the next few episodes we'll continue to think about some of these issues but we will return to them again and again. Absolutely. Look for these are some of our favourite conversations, and we're so grateful for Susan joining us today. Listeners, this podcast is produced by the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy, and we will leave links to the publications and sources that we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. 
If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with our future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. We always appreciate it. And it is, of course, the best way for other people to find out about our podcast. We love hearing from you, our audience. We love hearing how you have responded to today's conversation and to the many conversations we have on the pod. So please do reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford or through the Crawford School Public Policy LinkedIn page. And with that, it's all we have time for now. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it is bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week.